Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the show. It's made possible by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, today we have the company of a cycling pioneer and an Aussie trailblazer on the international stage. Phil Anderson was Australia's original Tour de France star, and in fact, the first non-European to don the famous Maillot Jaune, the yellow jersey. He's a dual-stage winner in the Tour and the Giro d'Italia. Phil also saluted at the Criterium de Dauphiné, the Tour de Suisse, the Tour de Romandy, and the iconic Amstel Gold Race to put cycling on the map in this country and pave the way for generations to follow. He's a member of the Order of Australia, and he sits in the Sports Australia Hall of Fame. Phil Anderson, welcome. Thanks a lot for your time. Yes, how's it going there, Sam? Great to be part of this. Really appreciate it, mate. Where, where do we find you this morning? Because I know you live in beautiful surrounds down the Great Ocean Road there. That is God's country. Where do we where do we find you this sunny morning? No, down the coast, it's beautiful. The Otway Ranges, couldn't find a better place to live. Good place to ride too. I know you like keeping fit. Do you still get out there on the Great Ocean Road, mate, and uh, turn them over? Yeah, yeah, still ride quite a bit. You know, most, well, not so much on the road, doing quite a bit of gravel now. So you get out of the way of the traffic and, you know, a bit more adventuresome uh, back in the hills. So, yeah, I rode down from a mate's place yesterday down in Melbourne from up by Ballarat, and most of it was on uh, gravel roads. So, you know, it's not interfering with traffic. It's, you know, sort of behind the highways and the byways, and uh, yeah, finding the quieter roads. All the rage, the gravel at the moment. But watching back over some of that old cycling footage of you taking it to the Euros back in the day, Phil, I mean, timeless vision in so many ways of you slugging it up the Pyrenees and the Alps in that 1981 Tour de Boo. No helmet, the hair flowing in the breeze or kept under the, the casket, the cap. Do you uh, shake your head? Does it feel like the same person when you watch some of that old vision? Seems like a bit of a time warp. <laughs> we're talking, uh, you know, over 40 years ago now. So, yeah, you know, the, the sport has evolved a lot since those days. You know, now every year you see riders coming from, you know, non-cycling, traditional cycling countries coming out and really dominating in, in the sport of cycling. And, you know, in the intro, you know, I was the first non-European to, to uh, get that yellow jersey. Well, it's happening every year now, you know, that we see different riders coming along and from different cycling countries. I mean, the traditional cycling countries, are, well, they're all European. France is the obvious one, but, uh, you know, Spain, Italy, Belgium, Holland, you know, in the 80s, the Eastern Bloc countries started um, opening up, Russians, of course, and, and these Germans and uh, Romania's coming from everywhere and, and now they're coming from you know they're coming from Africa they're coming from Asia they're coming from Australia obviously we've seen the great um, Cadell Evans come in and, and win the tour but you know in America it's it's uh, it's really opened up now so it's a different you know the sport has changed immensely yeah absolutely and you know we're going to mention words like pioneer and trailblazer a lot today but in Australia, you touched on it, pro cycling had nothing like the following back when you were coming through like it does now. We, in fact, we knew little about the tour, didn't we? So when you rode in the tour for the first time and on the yellow jersey for a day, I'm not sure it might have been more like a yellow fleece, but you, you were asked if there was a lot of talk about it back here and, and you said more football, more football. Exactly, yeah, I think, uh, well, I mean, social media has changed everything. Back then, the only real way of reading details about the race 
came out in print media and, you know, that was weeks away. They would go even air freighted. So, you know, there was a weekly magazine called Cycling Weekly came out of England. You know, that would hit our shores maybe a month after the fact. You know, if there was something specifically outstanding, you know, like getting the yellow jersey or uh, you might hear it on the news, but it, it would be on the on the wireless. That's <laughs> Not it. Not even on the television. Yes, it has changed a lot. And uh, when I was there, there were no Australian journalists over there. Of course, they are all um, because the start of the tour is always around Wimbledon time. There's always a, a handful of sprinkling of Australian journalists over there in England uh, covering that. You know, when I got the yellow jersey, a couple of them came over, were called over, come over. To, to France to see what this all this fuss is about, about a non-European getting yellow jersey, uh, being Australian. So, um, you know, there were a couple, but yeah, it was like a Martian taking, you know, taking the lead of this race. Yep. Uh, people didn't even know where Australia was or, you know, they thought it was Australia. Was that Austria? It was um, a bizarre time. The world was, yeah, a lot bigger back in those days. And, you know, there were a lot of unknowns about the perception of having a, a non-European rider taking the jersey by the scruff of its neck and wearing it around France was, uh, you know, totally unexpected, I think. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. The world was a bit big, well, a lot bigger back then, and that brought a charm in so many ways that we, that's we been stripped away now. And you were, geez, you were an, almost a novelty over there, but the locals, the French, they loved you. I mean, you had a couple of nicknames. Now, Le Kangaroo isn't the most original, but it seemed to stick as much as any. Yes, that's right. Well, if anything Australian, they always think of the kangaroos or the outback. Or, uh, but at that stage, uh, you know, this is in the eighties. They used to have reruns of Skippy. Skippy used to be a uh, program that show. You know, that was their their vision of Australia, and so they called me Skippy or the kangaroo was yep. a common coined name they gave me. You know, the headlines would be, you know, Skippy keeps the jersey another day or yeah, yeah but I mean it fit because you love to jump away you love to attack the bunch so there was it was a nice little symmetry there so it all became part of your life part of who you are Phil I mean what do you hold most dear you know these years on is it wearing the yellow for for a day in 81 for several days the next uh, year is it winning a stage at the tour is it the young rider classification is it the Giro stages you won Commonwealth Games gold as well, which we'll get to. But is there a moment or an achievement that you're drawn to more quickly or readily than any other? Well, I think it was the yellow jersey which changed everything for for me. You know, the projection of my uh, you know cycling career, let's say, that really changed things. You know, I went into that first tour. My job at the tour was, you know, we had a a very good rider, a French rider, Jean-René Bernardo. He was our team leader. And my job was Mm. to, uh, you know, collect water bottles and take them up to him and keep him out of the wind, you know, until the critical stages of the race. Unbeknown to me, he bolted on on, uh, that particular day. It was like day five in my first tour. And I just just got uh, carried away in the the moment and, and, uh, you know, found myself at the front of the bunks and uh, never really ridden the big mountains before. You know, there's the Pyrenees. Poor old... Jean Rene, I, uh, you know, I'd forgotten about my instructions there. I mean, he was having a bad day, but, um, you know, and I was having a good day. I sort of stayed with him, but, yeah, like I said, I got carried away and, and just was sort of following the lead of the race. Yeah, that's when I got the yellow jersey. So yeah, yeah big day. I want to, I want to come, I want to come back to that day, Phil, because there's a lot to take out of that that day in '81, which we'll do. But uh, for now, you're listening to this is your journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers, a family-owned business since 1934. 
So if you see it, you can be it. So how did Phil Anderson start dreaming about a life as a pro cyclist when there was basically no coverage of the European scene while he was growing up? Well, Phil Anderson's first steps are up after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Australian cycling icon Phil Anderson is our guest today. So, Phil, you're obviously as Aussie as they come. You don't get the nickname Skippy for nothing. But where were you born? I was actually born in England. (laughs) <laughs> it seems like if I had said I was I was uh, British, I wouldn't have had the uh, the following. I think uh, it's not something that I didn't disclose, but it wasn't something you know. People saw me as an Aussie. You know, the French. You know, remember what the Aussies did back in the war. I'm not quite that old, but uh, you know, pe- Australians have place in the in the hearts of you know, especially when you go into Brittany and you know, in the mm. north of France, where you know the the battlefields of the Second World War. Yeah, they took a real liking to me. I couldn't really sort of understand it at that stage, but in reflection, you know, you could see that you know they were appreciative uh, of what Aussies had done, but also the way that I sort of animated the race. You know, at that stage. You know, there was uh, Bernard Hino was the big the big star of the of the French you know cycling, and he'd uh, already run a couple of tours. So it was a real hero hero of mine. But yeah, a young kid coming and uh, snapping at his heels, and you know, making him work for his for his quid. People sort of liked that; they loved it. I didn't really have the support of Australians because it just wasn't in the uh, in the media back then. You know, when you look at the even the pop, how cycling has really become popular. You know, recreational and and um, and racing as well, but you see how how the sport has grown since then. You know, we see all these bloody cyclists out in the road. Everybody's complaining about. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you didn't see that back in the eighties, and you know, on Beach Road. You know, you didn't see those numbers. You didn't see the popularity. Uh, the only people that you saw out on a bike uh, on you know Beach Road or anywhere around. Uh, the country really with guys that you'd be racing with on the weekend. So Phil, you you come out here. I think you settled in the family. Obviously settled in Melbourne. I think you're only a baby, maybe when you you got out here. So childhood. I mean, where was home as a kid, and and what are those early memories? And and given the lack of culture of racing bikes in the country that you touch on at this stage, and I'm assuming you first got on the bike for for a hobby or even even a m- mode of transport as a real young fella. Yeah, possibly didn't get on the bike as early as. A lot of we grew up in East Ivanhoe. There was a family in our street I remember that had a bunch of bikes. I don't think I'd even ridden a, a two wheeler until I ten, twelve year old. Mm. You know, now you see, you know, kids getting the on, on a two wheeler, you know, very early, four or five years old. Yeah, once I started riding a little bit on our neighbours' bikes, you know, that's all I wanted was a bike, and I didn't actually get my first bike until I was like twelve. Yeah, yeah just riding around the street to queue and down down the boulevard. We used to. Right down to the river. What was the pathway then? So, like, you, you know, I think you went to Trinity Grammar. You might have started at the Hawthorne Cycling Club not far from where you live. So what what was the pathway, you know, whether it be first state and then national? Like, what, what pathway were you able to take, given they would have been less refined back then? I was 16 years old. I was with a buddy on our bikes and we are riding around Q Boulevard. I think we are going to go down to the river and go fishing, just uh, throw a line in. So it was in Q. We went down to what they call now the teardrop. 
mm-hmm. and there was a race going on. And I'd never seen a, uh, a bike race, just a circuit race. I don't know, it's like a kilometre circuit around around the boulevard down there. You know, I asked a, a guy on the corner standing there with a flag. I said, oh, what's going on here? And he just said, oh, this is, this is bike racing and, you know, this is a road race. And it excited me watching these guys. And, oh, all I want to do is see if I could take the corner at that speed. <laughs> and, um, you know, just hear the noise and, and the, hear the bunch uh, screaming through the corner. Yeah, I asked the guy a little bit, oh, bike racing, yeah, you know. In Melbourne, there's eight or ten clubs. You know, there's the track, there's road. And he said, yeah, there's clubs all over Melbourne. You know, there's a Hawthorne club. And I said, he said, go down to the uh, Laurentia Cycles in uh, Glenferry Road. They'll let you know more about the uh, club. So I went down to the uh, bike shop and they and he gave me a little leaf and it said, you know, members wanted Hawthorne Cycling Club. So I followed the instructions, went down to the club club room to a, uh, a meeting. And yeah, there was, there was a great team of people there and different language what I was used to. <laughs> Half the terminology were French names, you know, the bits of the bike and the, the peloton and uh, mm. you know, the chapelet breakaway and all these things. And so it really intrigued me. A couple of the younger guys said they'd take me out for a ride if I was interested. I mean, I only had a three-speed. So, uh, you know, I turned up with a flat bar bike and we were going to ride out to uh, the Dandenongs or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I was just right used to riding down to the um, down to the river, 5K ride return, and, and we were talking about like a... 50k right so oh yeah i'll give it a crack you know so um you know 16 year old we went up to the Danongs, and i remember you know they're on their slink racing bikes and i'm there on my three-speed flat bar bike i really struggled going up the hills and i remember going getting to the top and then you know we sort of went around and we were, we were going to come down the other side or not down the back side to come back down and I remember trying to follow them and they just rode away. But the excitement I had in, in uh, going down, you know, what we call the mountain at that stage was uh, intense and it was, um, it was so exciting. Uh, did my first race and, um, you know, a bit like a bike rider, really struggled. And, uh, you know, I eventually got some results and, and that just built on it. And, um, yeah, eventually, you know, won a race and, uh, you know, like a junior time trial championship and um, you know he got selected to do the nationals so back then you know the national championships were coming up for example and you'd have to get onto the Victorian team so that was a big that was a big deal because you know the best riders in Australia were all in Victoria and so you're competing you know every race was really like an Australian championship and yeah the pathways were a lot different then there were yeah. no state institutes there was no AIS different era indeed it's amazing on this show the amount of sporting stars we speak to Phil who are inspired by something they've seen on television or in person so for that you know for you it was obviously the Hawthorne Cycling Club that race on that day at that time just off Q Boulevard it's quite amazing so if you follow the pathway or your pathway through Commonwealth Games gold in the road race in 78 in Canada as a 19 year old and I think correct me if I'm wrong that got you an invite to Europe and to join the, the French sports club ACBB in, in Paris so you go halfway around the world at, at what 20 21 years of age had you ever lived out of home for any great length of time before that? No, going over to Europe, you know, mum would drive me to the airport and you'd have a suitcase and, you know, you'd be gone for nine months. A lot different now, you know, to communicate with people, you'd write a letter. Picking up the phone was pretty expensive back then. You'd pay a week's, a week's wage just to uh, call the other side of the world and, you know, I wasn't making a lot of money at that stage where the only money I had was the one money I was 
I was uh, in the winnings because, you know, this is sort of at an amateur level at the stage, so there wasn't a lot of cash floating. Yeah, you'd write letters uh, pretty much every day. You know, you've got uh, family and, and, you know, your girlfriend and things like this that you're trying to communicate with. I'd never seen the Tour de France on television before. I was actually writing in it. So, you know, I didn't realise the sort of significance and how, how big it is. I can't imagine the culture shock in real time. But coming back to these... These amateur days in Paris, was it intimidating, Phil? Did they try to push the young Aussie around over there? Uh, yeah, like, it was, you know, I joined a club in, in Paris, a Parisian club, and uh, we went down to have a training camp in the south of France, and that's a bit like going from Melbourne to Adelaide in distance. Uh, it was like 900 kilometres away, and, you know, it's a little bit warmer down the Mediterranean. And all the, well, a lot of the big clubs go down south of France, a bit warmer down there, and uh, you turn up to these races, you know, with your club, and we had... 15, 20 members in the club. We'd all go to, to the race, so we'd have 20 of us. And there'd be like heaps of clubs from all over France, you know, south of France, so you're close to Italy, there'd be a sprinkling of Italian teams as well. You'd have two or 300 riders in, in a race. And I'd never ridden in a, in a race that size. It was huge. And then the distances, you know, 100, 120 kilometres, you know, for us back here, the only time you'd race those distances are in championships and things and you know yeah. i'd ridden the australian championship but uh here here they're like three three or four days a week you're doing this you know it was great i mean i was you know I was just reveling in it it was, it was fantastic the color the speed the excitement the sounds the smells it was bloody uh it was awesome yeah. like i was just like a kid in a candy store but you're starting at the bottom aren't you feel like it's hard might be hard for you to convey but when you are out there on the road surrounded by a couple of hundred guys it's Reputation carries some weight, doesn't it? I mean, as a as a newcomer, was anyone giving you a wheel in the crosswinds? Some of those, you know, one day races you'd later do in Belgium when the conditions are, are, are quite harsh. Was anyone giving you a wheel to sit on or shielding you from the wind, or was it just fend for yourself sort of stuff? No, it was like every man for himself. The second race we did, I don't know, it was just out of Marseille. I think uh, we'll just have too long. A place called Sanary. I remember Sanary from there, and uh, it was a hill. There's a mountaintop finish. You know, finishes up there on the ridge. He's got these sort of uh, limestoney plateaus there, and it was a um, you know it was a windy road with a finish on the top. You know, this race might have been 100, 120 kilometres. I was just struggling, uh, you know, holding the wheels in the in the in the middle of the pack, and then um, but I knew it was going to be a, a mountaintop finish, so. You know, everybody's trying to get to the to the front. You know, as we approached the bottom of the hill, and I was just trying to, you know, I just kept kept getting elbowed and pushed back further back. But you know, we got to the bottom of the hill, and then sure enough, riders started, you know, buckling, and and uh, you know, I just started overtaking them one by one. Uh, when we got, you know, to the last kilometre, there's only a few of us left, and you know, I looked around me, and there was a few of them. Were, a couple of them were uh, teammates. You know, I looked over, and and in the end, I was I was sprinting against my uh, teammates, as uh, bloke Pascal. You know, I think he was pretty pissed off that I flicked off his wheel, and and you know I took the win there in my in my second second race. You know, the next race you turn up and people were patting on the back, and you know other riders and people are yeah, oh, this Australian they kangaroo, and <laughs> but, uh, you know suddenly you know I started getting a little bit of um, respect from the other riders. I, mean, I still had to fight. Uh, but you know within the team they certainly um, mm. you know were pretty surprised that I was suddenly you know up there with their uh, better riders. The following year we you know I got a bunch of good results that year. They have a series of like a aggregate of points throughout the year, and uh, and I think I won it that year. And this is in the whole of France, so as a, as an amateur, so I um, either got first or second in that aggregate. 
you know, because I'd, I'd done well, I had a couple of teams uh, approach me, professional teams. They approached me and wanted to know I turned pro. That was the dilemma because, uh, you know, this was 79 and the next year, 1980, the year that would, you know, these pro teams wanted me to ride for them. Um, that was going to be Olympic year. Yeah. And so, you know, one of my goals going over there that year was a, uh, join that club was to get some experience to be able to you know represent the country as a true amateur and go and ride in Moscow at the Olympics. I'd already got a gold in the Commonwealth Games, and this was kind of you know the next step would be to uh, to ride the Olympics. And I had to make that choice whether I was going to stay amateur and and ride the um, Olympics, or you know be tempted by you know lured across to the to the evil side of the professionals. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, I, I you know I was humbled by uh, the approach of, of uh, professional teams that, you know, buckled with the knees and, and went pro. So I never got to, to the Olympics. So we're with cycling great Phil Anderson, and this is your journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Phil has left us an interesting point here because he's about to burst onto the pro scene, and we'll discuss that next. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. Today's guest is dual Tour de France stage winner and Sport Australia Hall of Famer, Phil Anderson. So, Phil, as you said before, you you succumbed to the dark side as you termed it. You turned pro, you signed with Peugeot, which I think was one of the oldest French teams or still is. And In fact, for our younger listenership, is this now AG2R? Is this the same outfit? Yeah, it's uh, got a deep history in the in the sport. So I mean, people know the, the brand uh, from the cars, but I think before the cars, they were actually making uh, bicycles way back in uh, well, 150 years ago. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, history and tradition in the in the in that uh, team. So success in your amateur days, of course, but now almost as a professional, it's almost like starting again, isn't it? So you're a foreigner plopped into a French team with French riders and French traditions. I mean, can you say you were on equal footing with your teammates or were you viewed and perhaps treated a bit differently? We had a South African in the team. We had an Englishman in the team. But otherwise, all the other riders were French. My first year with Peugeot, I didn't uh, do the tour. Uh, my second year in the uh, in the team. So 81 was my first tour of France. So... I've had a bit of experience riding in the pro peloton uh, by the time I got to my first Tour de France. But, you know, these teams, and they're even bigger now, uh, you know, back then they'd had 20 riders. Uh, now they have closer to 30. Mm. And so they, they uh, select the bet their best eight riders or nine riders put in the Tour de France. So there's, there's a selection within the team uh, as you approach the Tour de France. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't that aware of, you know, the politics within the team. You know, my second year leading up to the Tour de France, I had a couple of results, a couple of small wins. They weren't really big wins, but I uh, was a Tour de Lord. Well, 81, 81 yeah. you, you won a stage at Paris-Nice. I think, I think you, you had four top three finishes uh, yeah. at the Dauphiné, and I guess that was enough to, to sneak you onto the squad. Now, I'm not sure, just in 81 here, Phil, I'm not sure if it's possible to ever take the yellow jersey by accident, but... If it is, you did it. It was June 30, 81, stage five you mentioned earlier. Now, as you said, you know, debutant at the tour, there's no aspirations of anything, I imagine. You're giving 
you know, some specific instructions. Look after your leader. You're absolutely a domestique in every way, shape and form. A, a gopher on wheels for those unfamiliar. And yet here you are on a mountainous stage five. And as you touched on before, you found yourself part of a select group up front and your leader's 10 minutes back down the road behind you. So how does the conversation go with the team car at a moment like this? Yeah, I remember the, uh, you know, now, of course, all the teams have uh, radio communication with the riders. But uh, back then, you'd, your uh, director would uh, push his way in the car. He'd sort of come up behind and uh, I could see the car sort of coming up. Actually, you hear it before because every team, director's always on the horn as they're approaching and each team would have their own sort of... Uh, you know, klaxon sort of jingle on there, like people have on their on their phones now. You'd recognise the uh, the tone of the of the uh, tune as he approached. I thought, here we go, my director. So I, he came up beside me and he said, "Hey, Phil, Jean Rene." And I go, "Yeah, teammate Jean Rene." He said, "Where is he?" And I said, uh, "Yeah, he's not here, is he?" Um, <laughs> I'm pretty bloody buggered, actually. I can uh, how far back is he? I can ease up, and um, you know bring him back up here and he said, no, no, he's uh, he's not having a good day, but your instructions were to stay with him. And I said, oh, radio. I didn't answer back, but I'm thinking, well, geez, we'd have nobody up here, would we? Anyway, he said, come and see me after the race. I said, oh, geez, that's bloody trouble. Anyway, I said, uh, you sure you don't want me to ease up? He said, no, no, buddy, you're doing okay there. See, there you go. So I was, you know, there was maybe half a dozen, oh, maybe more actually, maybe like 10 riders left at the bottom of this last climb. And, you know, it was gonna, the finish was going to be at a ski resort, Plateau, so again, the Pyrenees. You know, there's one rider had attacked at the bottom. I remember, Lucien Vanier, Belgian rider, climber. You know, he'd won the King of the Mounts like he's obviously a very good climber. And uh, he took off. You know, when somebody attacks like that on the uh, on the bottom of a mountain, everybody kind of looks at each other. And it's like, who's going to chase here? Who's going to, you know, we can't just let him go away. You know, and they all looked to me, the kid from bloody Hawthorne. <laughs> and I thought, these guys are my heroes. i got these guys on my wall. You know, I couldn't dream of any of those guys had my photo on their wall. But uh, they're looking to me to chase down, you know, Lucien Van Epp. I think he won the tour uh, in 76 or something like this. Or, you know, like a, just a brilliant climber. And here they want, um, you know, this kid that would struggle getting up, buddy, up the Dandongs to um, pull the race together, you know. So I just sort of put the others back the same they did to me anyway. They sort of did a bit of formation and, you know, the tempo picks up a little bit. But we never saw that Belgium again. Anyway, I noticed, you know, it was quite a warm day. The riders would be, um, you know, they'd, somebody would be beside the road with a uh, bottle of water and they'll hand it to one of the riders and guy, the riders would take a swig and then pass it to the next rider across this, you know, this elite the, uh, group of riders. And um, suddenly I saw on, on the uh, on my side, I was on the right-hand side of the road, somebody had just cracked open a, uh, a, uh, a can of Coke. Beautiful. Frosty, you know. I thought, oh, geez, that's what I need, a bit of sugar. So I reach out for it, and I, uh, I'm just about to take a swig, and I look over next to me, and this, this Bernardino was there. And, uh, you know, he was, he was like a bloody hero of mine, uh, having won the tour two years before. And, yes, he's world champion at that stage. I looked over, I couldn't believe he's riding beside me. You know? So I thought, oh, it's a gesture. I sort of, before taking a swig, I gave it. I gave it across to him or offered it to uh, Bernardino, and he kind of looked at me with a snarl, like he wasn't looking very good. You know, he had a frock coming out of his mouth, and you know, it looked like <laughs> looked like he looked, he looked in pretty bad shape. He was offended. Is he offended? He was. Well, he was offended, so he reached out and he just punched that bloody uh, coke or hit that coke out of my hand that went flying off into the crowd. I thought, 
what a bloody a-hole, you know? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And, uh, you know, I sort of glanced around to see if I could see, you know, another refreshment. And, you know, and there was one coming from the other side of the road. I mean, those guys were used to racing with each other all the, all the time. And, you know, suddenly there's somebody who looks, you know, somebody they didn't recognise. I possibly thought I was one of the guys out of the crowd or something, just uh, jumped on a bike and riding in the group with them. Anyway, that was my first. Uh, engagement with uh, Bernard Hino. It was possibly the first time he'd recognised me was when I was had an offering for him. But anyway, that was yeah. my... So, yeah, you, my... You, as you say, you found yourself alongside your hero, Bernard Hino, who upon retirement would be a five-time winner. He wasn't happy to be offered the, the can of Coke. But the, the Belgian rider got away and you finished in a position that saw you pull on the Maillot-Jean. So the significance, the weight of history, I can't imagine that all hit home in the moment there, did it? Or were you just happy you didn't have to wash the old Peugeot jersey and you had a crisp new one to pull on? Yeah, well, that's right. It was um, That was a, a real novelty for me because, uh, you know, now the teams are huge. You know, they have each team now, They <laughs> some of the teams, they carry mattresses in each ride. Yeah. Has their they, got, mattress. they got three washing machines at the bottom of those buses, some of these teams. Yeah, yeah, but, but back then we used to have to wash our own, our own kit and so, uh, yeah, at the end of the stage, you sort of get back to the hotel and, uh, you know, at least we had mechanics for the bikes, but, uh, you know, we'd have to clean our uh, kit so it's, um, you know, fresh the next day. I mean, you know, we had, you know, we had plenty of, um, you know, new jerseys and stuff like that, but, uh, you know, you sort of preserve the... Uh, the new ones for special days, but yeah, but there's nothing like getting a uh, a leaders a fresh leaders jersey each day, and uh, you know that day obviously got the yellow got the yellow jersey, so I think you get a long sleeve, a short sleeve, and they give you one on the on the podium, and they have a bit of velcro down the back or a zipper down the back, so you don't mess up your your uh, luft or your yes. casket. <laughs> it was uh, a new experience for me. So you would wear it for just the one day, unfortunately. Here's the thing. Like, you, you, the Stage 6 time trial over nearly 27 kilometres the next day, you rode bloody well. You finished third. The only problem was that Hino was first at 30 seconds quicker and, and you lost it. But 82, you wore it, I think, for nine magical days there. Um, and 85, obviously, um, might have even been your best year looking back. You claim the white jersey as best young rider, but won the Tour de Suisse, won the Dauphiné, second at Flanders, second at Ghent Wevel game. I mean, these are... These are big, big races, Phil, to state the obvious. Everybody knows the Tour de France, but, uh, you know, there's a complete circuit there. It's a bit like, um, you know, Formula One, everybody sees, you know, you see the uh, the Melbourne one or the Monaco Grand Prix. Uh, you know, there's actually, a, you know, they've got them in Vegas. They've got them all over the world, you know. So the circuit is, it, it basically goes, you know, from, well, now it goes from the Tour Down Under in, in uh, January, mid-January, right through till um, October. They've just only finished the last big monument the other day, Lombardia. So, you know, while I was, I was known for uh, some good results in the Tour de France, I was possibly better at the big one-day classics and, mm. and, um, and uh, you know, the shorter tours, tours like Tour of Switzerland, Dauphiné, which were, were uh, lead-up events for the Tour de France. But, yeah, the big one-day races, you know, I love those, you know, the, in the, the spring classics, you know, when the weather is marginal at best. Uh, you know, it's often raining or snowing and over cobblestones and, you know, it's a pretty harsh conditions. You know, for much of my career, I lived in Belgium and, and just, you know, loved the Flemish people and, and yeah, no, nothing like a, um, a wet tour of Flanders, you know, when you're climbing up those steep cobbled climbs and uh, riding through fields of bloody cow poo and... <laughs> You know, yep. it was, uh, that was my, that was my uh, play pit. You are listening to This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. There's more to come with Phil Anderson after this break. 
You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. We've had the company today of Aussie cycling great Phil Anderson. So, Phil, we've spoken a lot about your trailblazing career on the bike, but am I also right in saying that you were among the first to choose to wear a helmet when, of course, they weren't mandatory? Back in the 80s, you know, it was almost like a rite of passage when you turn pro, you didn't have to wear a helmet. <laughs> you know, it was a different... In some countries, like in Belgium, you know, you had to wear a helmet. But, you know, in France, you know, sort of the, the uh, heart of the sport there, you didn't have to wear a helmet if you were a pro. So none of the riders chose to route, uh, you know, when given the choice, they didn't wear a a, um, a helmet. It wasn't uh, fashionable. And, you know, a lot different than now. Now it's compulsory, you know, whether you're training or racing, you know, it doesn't matter your age, you have to wear a helmet. Back then, it was, um, you know... You could wear a helmet. So anyway, I remember uh, it was about 81. There was a, um, a rider that I admired, a Portuguese rider, Agostino was his name, uh, Portuguese. And I used to find him in the bunch and we'd say hi. You know, he spoke a little bit of English. We'd speak a little bit of French. Real nice, a bit, bit, you know, quite a bit older than me. He would have been in his oh, late 30s. So yeah, he was like one of the older guys and one of the patrons of the bunch. Suddenly, I didn't see him around and I I asked one of his teammates, hey, where's Agostino? And he, they said, oh, I didn't hear. He's a tragic accident. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think it was Tour of Portugal. He'd, uh, you know, hit a dog in the finishing straight and, and uh, went over the bars and unfortunately he's no longer with us. You know, so this is, like now you hear about that immediately because of social media and, and the way the press works. But back then it was just a huge shock. Pretty much ever since then, I was wearing a helmet, you know, Occasionally, I wouldn't, uh, you know, if it was a mountaintop finish or, uh, you know, it's always the times when you don't think it's going to be a hazard, you know, it, it's the most dangerous. But, you know, 90% of the time I wore a helmet after that. I've always seen a bit of an oddity, you know, what are you wearing a helmet for? You know, you're in France, it's, you're a pro. And, uh, they look like eskies in those early days as well. Yeah, that's right. They just call it a sotty helmet or whatever. It just looked like, so I remember going to a bike show, I think it was in Long Beach or something. And I remember because I, I had, a, had a helmet sponsor. And I remember they had a cross section of one of those helmets, you know, just cut down the, down the guts of this little sausage helmet and it was compressed cardboard what was inside as it was the uh you know was your protection of course that's before you know these modern sort of hard shell helmets they have now um which you know has quite a bit of polystyrene in it and yeah you know, they've been tested and uh you know much safer yeah so yeah i was one of the first riders to wear a helmet through choice and you know as soon as the bigger helmets came in i was into those as well you know the first ones are pretty pretty hideous looking i must admit you know they look like bloody putting an esky on your head or <laughs> they used to call it a piss pot you know like putting a potty on your head yeah. they weren't very becoming um you know now they're they're a lot better than they were and you know they keep evolving as well so um yeah always uh always, well you have to wear a helmet now so uh, but yeah, I would. You'd feel it's a bit like driving without a seatbelt, you know. Yeah. Occasionally, I'll uh, come out of the bike shed and say, "What's wrong? Oh, my helmet!" You know, so you'd uh, put the helmet on, and it just gives you a, a bit of um, relief. Sunglasses too, like there weren't many, if any, sports-specific sunnies back then. And now, as we know, the market's just flooded with premium options everywhere. Now, I think it was you and Greg Lamond, uh, the famous American Tour de France winner. There was. 
who started wearing them. And there might have been a kerfuffle in the press about how weird they were. I mean, uh, Oakley, as I said, are now an enormous brand. And you might have been one of their original ambassadors. But the, the TVs, the photographers, they hated it. They couldn't recognise the riders, Phil. Yeah, it took quite a bit of adjustment. I mean, the first, the reason I wore glasses in the beginning was because uh, around this, well, especially around here in Australia, it's this time of year, but um, mm. you know, the springtime over there is always April, May. Um, the allergies uh, used to suffer quite uh, badly from hay fever. And so, um, you know, you get get back to the hotel after uh, the race or training and you'd be itching your eyes and, and you know, you'd wake up and you'd, your eyes would be all crusty and it's just because of the pollens and stuff in your in the air so um you know i i my first glasses i got were uh just like ray-ban aviators or something and then um yeah oakley came to me and at that stage they oakley they produced bmx uh grips and things like this this is before they didn't have eyewear but then the um you know the founder of the company came to me and and said um you know, Phil, would you be interested in trying our know, glasses? And the glasses are big, like a lot different than the aviators that I was wearing or anything else. They look more like a ski goggle. So, uh, you know, you mentioned ski goggle and you automatically have this image and that's kind of how they were. They were big, they were, you know, covered half your face. And, um, you know, uh, Lamont was a good friend of mine and um, we went, we were at a bike show and, um, yeah, they approached us and we said, yeah, we'll, we'll give them a try. And I think Greg was a bit hesitant at, far, at in the start because they were kind of, you know, they were quite large. And uh, anyway, we uh, we tried them and, yeah, we got over to Europe with our, you know, eyewear and, yeah, they're a bit of a laugh at the belt on. But then people could see the uh, the benefit as soon as we got into, or even in bad weather in with clear lenses, uh, you know, riders would be struggling to see, you know, when you're riding down a, a uh, you know, narrow row with buckets of water just coming off, going straight in your face. You know, we could see it as clear as anything and the other guys would be squinting and, mm. uh, you know, you could see the benefit there. But, yeah, then you come to spring with the pollens and stuff. And so, um, you know, other riders started asking, you know, if if uh, if we had any glasses, we could, we could uh, let them try. So we contacted Oakley and they sent over bucket loads of uh, glasses for us to distribute to anybody that asked. And, um, yeah, by the time we got to the Tour de France, we had half the, half the, the uh, peloton covered with glasses. So <laughs> it worked out really well with um, Oakley. I mean, that was just sort of dabbling in uh, eyewear at that stage because, uh, you know, the main thing was still BMX and, and uh, with their grips and bar protection and, and uh, yeah, and, and mm. the rest is history. Yeah, it is. You can't imagine anyone riding without them these days. Uh, away from all that, though, Phil, more modern day, I guess the ongoing wrestle, if I can call it that, or um, adjustment and culture shift with creating better um, cyclist and motorist behaviour and the relationship, given we all share the road. I know you've lent a lot of your time to uh, foundations like the Amy Gillett Foundation and and all things around car cycler safety. How do you think we're placed as a culture and a society here in Australia, given you spent so much time in Europe and it is so different there. How do you think we're placed at the moment in Australia in 2023? Yeah, look, it's it's um, it's very interesting because of the growth in uh, cycling as a as a um, oh, pastime or as a recreational activity. 
uh, it's just huge now. You know, the numbers on the road and, you know, in Europe, it's always been part of the culture. You know, mm. it's nothing new. You know, cars have respect for um, drivers and vice versa. You know, there's sort of a harmony, harmony, um, harmony which is which is there and and uh, you know most people that are driving cars have ridden bikes you know in their youth or you know when they're going to university or you know as part of the you know there's there's infrastructure as well there's bike paths uh, you go to places like Holland there's more bikes on the road than cars uh, so you know you come to Australia um, and and in America as well uh, you know the automobile is it seems like a, a, a rite of passage and it's the way that the country moves. Um, and so the days of bicycles and horse and cart and, you know, pedestrians are, um, you know, unfortunately aren't given the space or you look at the even design of, of um, <clears throat> infrastructure, whether it be bike paths or pedestrian paths uh, in new developments, uh, even when they're putting in new freeways or... Um, you know, infrastructure, you know, there isn't the consideration for um, other road users than uh, cars. And so, yeah, it's a real battle. Um, mm. You know, cyclists try and stay off the uh, major roads or, uh, you know, there are, there are pathways through cities like Melbourne and Sydney and, and uh, you know, which are preferred by cyclists you know, Beach Road or St Kilda Road and, you know, um, but, yeah, there's always, there's that conflict and, uh, you know, it's always a, a sore point and, you know, we're not, cyclists are not out there trying to get in the way of, of, um, of cars because it's, you know, it's not convenient, just like it's inconvenient for, um, for car drivers to have cyclists slowing the, uh, the flow down. We try and choose a, a path less travelled to cope with, you know, to try and get that harmony that they have in other parts of the world. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I'm involved with the Amy Gillett Foundation and, um, you know, and, and we've had legis legislation uh, change so that there's, um, you know, where at least it's legislation of given a, a bit of space on the road, uh, a metre if it's uh, 60 kilometres an hour zone or a metre and a half if it's, um, over 60 kilometres so an hour so but I you know I really prefer choosing and that's why I ride gravel a lot these days is because you can get away from the yeah. traffic it, it um, you know it's not putting pressure on any of the infrastructure that's there uh, we're not out there trying to slow things down we're not out there protesting we just um, you know we just choose to um, to ride our bikes whether it be for pleasure or commuting or fitness or um would it be? Phil Anderson, thanks so much for your time today, mate. There is so much to admire in what you chased and what you achieved when it was infinitely more difficult than what it is now. You are forever enshrined in Australian sporting history and so many great Aussie cyclists were inspired by your feat. So well done on everything you've done and we appreciate you sharing your story with us today. Thank you very much. It's been uh, great to be the program. Love the work. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can jump online where you'll find them at tobinbrothers.com.au. And we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey.